The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 and our scripture reading is going to be verses 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. This is the living and abiding word of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So we just celebrated verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. We, we just celebrated the first appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do every Advent season. We celebrate the Advent of the Son of God. And it is that Advent of the Son of God which brought us our salvation. And so in that little phrase that we see there in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. What Paul is doing in that little expression, the grace of God has appeared, is, is in a sense that is, that is Paul's shorthand for the entirety of God's saving work in his son, Jesus Christ. In a real sense, in 2.11, Jesus Christ is grace personified. Or if you will, grace incarnate. And so we just celebrated that and how we love the first appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He enters into this world through, through the womb of the virgin. He comes into this world. He's born into poverty. He is born in a, in a, in a backwater town. He is raised up. He is absolutely pure, holy, sinless, undefiled, lives his entire life in sinless purity. At age 30, begins his ministry, teaches, does miracles, and then finally lays down his life for us and then takes it up again. And so we rightly celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God because the incarnation is our salvation. In fact, the incarnation of the Son of God or his first appearing is worthy of not just annual celebration, but is worthy of eternal celebration, right? There's a sense in which 
from the point of the, of the conception in the virgin's womb, from there on throughout all of eternity, Jesus Christ is now and forever will be the God-man. There's never a time where he's going to actually lay aside his humanity. He will forever be the God-man. And so the first appearing, the incarnation of our Lord, is worthy of eternal celebration. It's worthy of our meditation. You want to talk about something that will expand your mind in, in ways that go beyond your borders. You want to talk about something that will thrill your soul, something that is knowable and yet incomprehensible. Stop and consider the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, how God became man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And by the way, you can meditate on it and we should, we should reflect on it and As we do, no matter how deeply you think about it, you'll never plumb the depths of it. And in fact, I would go so far to say that even in eternity, we will never plumb the depths of how the infinite became finite and yet remained infinite. Don't forget that part. Now, We celebrate it, we meditate on it, we exalt him in it. But the first appearing of God's grace in Jesus Christ is not just an awesome historical event. It's also something that is at work in us. In other words, um, you you have to draw a distinction between historical events and historical events that actually change your life. So, maybe George Washington chopped down the cherry tree. Maybe he didn't. If he didn't, no skin off my nose. Right? True? True? Does George Washington crossing the Delaware have a little more of an impact on me? <laughs> of course, I'd have an English accent if, it, if he didn't, all right? So there are historical events that make an impact, right? Um, D-Day, that have implications for us today. Absolutely. Victory in Europe Day, Absolutely. Victory over Japan, absolutely. All of those things have, have implications for us in this life right now. But it is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ that doesn't just simply have implications for your life. The, the, the very event of the incarnation is at work in your life. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the text, it says... The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. So he's worked salvation in me, 
right? That's massive. But then notice also verse 12, instructing us. What's instructing us? The grace of God is instructing us. That is the grace of God personified in our Lord Jesus Christ who actually accomplishes God's saving acts. It is that which is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And so the grace of God, which has appeared, that is the incarnation, teaches us. So in other words, grace is now an educator. Grace, if you're a recipient of that grace, that grace is at work in you, teaching you. So yeah, there's a sense of um, teaching, uh, that grace teaching us in a sort of a formal sense, Bible studies, reading the scriptures, uh, hearing sermons, that kind of thing. But there's also another sense in which that grace is, is, is an internal teacher. The reality, the truth of the appearing of the Son of God is now an internal teacher. That grace is an internal teacher doing what? Persuading me, encouraging me um, in my new life in Christ. The way that Paul puts it is like this, to live in this present age. The grace of God teaches me how to live in this present age, all right? Now, I wish that that was the sermon because that's really good stuff, but I want to look at the next thing that the appearing of the grace of God does for us. Ready for it? There's something else that the first advent teaches us, and that is found in verse 13. To eagerly look forward to the second appearing. Right? Do you see it? I want you to see it. So verse 12, instructing, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior in Jesus Christ. And so we could put it like this. The first advent teaches us to look for the second advent. When Paul says to look forward, the idea is to to eagerly Await. So here's, you could say this is one of the themes of the sermon. When the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see our salvation accomplished in the first appearing, he also works in us an eagerness for Christ's second appearing. Okay? Now, say, how do you know that's true? Simple answer. I can read. Now, so keep your finger there in Titus 2, and we're just going to look at a couple of texts, all right? The first, you're just going to back up a little bit to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, right? So this this is what I'm trying to demonstrate to you, that when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see our salvation in the first appearing of Christ, he works in us an eagerness for the second appearing of Christ, all right? So, Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, and he says in verse 9, he says, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and 
to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And so Paul's point to the Thessalonians is actually very simple, is the gospel came to you. And when the gospel came to you, it did two things in you. So first of all, you were pursuing idols But the grace of God came to you, the salvation of God came to you, and it turned you from your idols to worship and serve the living God. We call that conversion. We call it salvation, right? We call it any number of things, but that's the first thing that happened, is that you turn from idols to to then worship and serve the living and true God. And then Paul says, there's a second thing that this salvation did for you. And that is, not only did it turn you from your idols to worship and serve the living and true God, but it also put within you a looking for the coming of the Son of God. The Son of God who saves us from the wrath to come. The Son of God whom God raised up from the dead. The Son of God for, for whom we await from heaven. All right? So, 2 Timothy chapter 4. You might think to yourself, okay, well, I remember when I first believed in Jesus, I was really excited because I thought, well, he could come at any second. And here I am, middle age, late middle age, early old age, old age, old, old age. And I've been waiting. And so I think I'm going to probably die first. This is Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come, right? So Paul says, I am actually about to die. This is what he says. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who stop. Now, if you're, a, if you're a logical thinker, you might think the passage reads like this. Fought the good fight, right? Finished the course, kept the faith, and there's going to be a crown for me, and the Lord's going to give me that crown on that day, but not only to me, but also to all who fought the good fight and kept the faith. And finish the course. That doesn't that actually make some sense, right? Or am I just crazy? Okay. Well, yeah. Look, he's talking. All right. What he says is, he'll award it to me and to all who have loved his appearing. So here's Paul, and he, he labors for, for decades. He suffers. He's out there, and he's, he's laboring for the gospel. He's persecuted for the sake of the gospel, and he's laying his life down. He comes to the end of his life, and he says, so here I am. I'm being poured out as a drink offering, right? The time of my departure, right? The time for me to set sail has come. 
And you know what God's going to do for me? He's going to give me the crown of righteousness. This is how we know he's talking about the future. He's going to give me that crown of righteousness. It's laid up for me in the future. And the Lord's going to give it to me. But he's not only going to give it to me. He's going to give it to everybody who what? Loved his appearing. So here's Paul about ready to die. And he's still thinking, come Lord Jesus. If I meet you in death, great. Oh, but if you split the skies... Greater. All right? Okay, so you can see just from those two verses, and there's more, we'll see more. Here's the premise again that when God works by His Holy Spirit in your heart, bringing you salvation through the first appearing of Christ, He works in you a longing and eagerness for the second appearing of Christ. Okay? Now, um, the first advent does what for us? The first advent gives us an eager longing or expectation for the second advent. So today's message on the first Lord's Day of 2024 is we ought to eagerly look for, look long for and look forward to our blessed hope, which is nothing other than the second appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, normally we go verse by verse. I don't usually do topical sermons very often, but we're going to do one today. All right, so three points. If it's a topical sermon, it has to be three points. All right, and uh, I don't have a poem, but maybe I'll work one in at the end. First point, the fact of Christ's return. Second point, our attitude towards Christ's return. And then third point, Lord willing, only God knows right now what will happen (laughs) at his return. All right? So, this should be obvious to us. If you're, if you're fast enough to look in your Bibles at some of these verses, feel free. If not, just listen. So here's the fact of Christ's return. The New Testament teaches clearly that Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in power and great glory. Okay? So let me just say just a couple of things This is why the sermons get too long. It's because I always got a couple things I got to say. All right, so the first is this. There is a teaching out there that Jesus already returned, okay? It's called preterism or full preterism. It It is heresy. It is damnable heresy. It is a denial of one of the fundamental truths of our Christian faith that Jesus Christ will return, all right? Second thing that I should say is this. There are a lot of variations regarding the second coming, all right? And so some of you, you love Left Behind series, okay? And you're waiting for a pre-trib rapture. Others of you think, you know, we gotta go halfway through. And then others of you say, no, it's one and the same thing, all right? If you've been in Revelation with us, you know where I stand, but here's, let me just say this, regardless of what you think of the nuanced variations, the truth is that it is the second coming, personal and visible, 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the indisputable pillar of the Christian faith. All right? So, that aside, so if I go through this and you're like, well, when does he think the rapture is going to happen? Okay, let me just tell you, I think the rapture and the second coming are the same thing. If you disagree with that, it's okay, because you can still believe everything I'm about to say. I remember the first day I went home, I told Ariel, I said, you know what, I, I don't think I believe in a pre-trib rapture anymore. She looks at me, she's like, you can think whatever you want. When the trumpet sounds, I'm going up. You might be left behind. (laughs) So, the fact of Christ's return. I'm going to do this quickly. Jesus himself taught he would return. Okay? Jesus, in in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 25, 31, no time to look it up. Let me read it to you. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Okay? John chapter 14, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so just two very simple, there are others, we don't have time to look at all of them. And so Jesus himself taught that he would return a second time, personally and visibly, all right? Angels at the ascension said Jesus was going to return personally and visibly. Acts chapter one, right? So, After, verse 9, after he said these things, talking about being his witnesses and so forth, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, right? So you know what this is like, right? You know, the little kid gets the helium balloon and then actually accidentally lets it go. And, And they're like, Right? So Jesus ascends into heaven, and the disciples are gazing intently, like, wow. Peter, do you still see him? Uh, John, you're younger than me. Your eyes are better than mine. And so while they're gazing intently as he's being taken up into heaven, an angel comes. Two men. In white clothing, stood beside them. Boom. And they said, also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in the sky? <laughs> Don't you know that Peter probably had an answer? <laughs> right? It doesn't get recorded for us. No marginal reading. But I think Peter probably said, why do you think we're looking in the sky? Jesus Christ just ascended into heaven. You guys look angelic. Can you see him? This Jesus, this is what the angels say, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, how visibly, personally, right, will come 
Notice this, in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. So, so the second coming is not going to be in the secrecy of, of the virgin's womb. It's not going to be in the poverty of the manger. It's going to be visible and personal with great power and glory. The early church continually looked for his return. I already read 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, turned from idols to serve the living and true God, looking for his son from heaven, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, Verse 20, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we, what's the language? Eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he even had to subject all things to himself. And so Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And you know what we're doing? We're eagerly waiting for our Savior to come from heaven. Hebrews chapter 9. This is such a good passage. Hebrews 9, verse 28 Actually, let's back up to verse 27. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear, what? A second time for salvation without reference to sin. In other words, he's not coming to be the Lamb of God who offers himself up for our sins, but rather... uh, without reference to sin, and he comes for who? To those who eagerly await him. All right. So by the way, we could multiply texts like this over and over and over again. And so, how does Paul end? First Corinthians, he says, if anyone does not love The Lord Jesus, anathema. Anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus, anathema is, let him be accursed. You have to kind of think about the way he closes. Anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus, anathema, maranatha. Anathema, let him be accursed. Maranatha, Lord, come. And so the apostle ends that letter to the Corinthians and he says, not only anathema on those who don't love the Lord Jesus, but then Maranatha, come Lord. John, at the end of the book of the Revelation, which we're almost at on, on Wednesday nights, he actually Jesus says, yes, I am coming quickly. And then John turns around and says, amen. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This was 
and is the blessed hope of the church. It is when Jesus Christ will come with power and great glory. So, what should be our attitude? Point two. What should be our attitude towards Christ's return? Well, first, very obviously, we should do what? We should eagerly await for our Lord's return. There should be a sense where, where just as the Thessalonians were looking for the return of the Son from heaven, just as Paul says in Philippians 3.20, we should eagerly await his return from heaven, just as it says in Hebrews 9.28, uh, and again and again, Jude 21, there should be a wonderful sense where we, where we eagerly anticipate the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't mean kids, you're on the eve of a big exam and you haven't studied like you should and you're like, Lord, if, this, if, if, if you're going to come anytime soon, I pray that it's tomorrow. Right? I mean, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about just looking for the return of Jesus to get us out of some scrape. In fact, when when I was a student at Biola, we had students, uh, male students, females weren't like this. And the, the prayer would be, Lord, please don't let me be a BTR. Now, some of you know what that is. Lord, I don't want to be a bachelor till the rapture. So if you could actually just kind of hold it off a little bit so that I could at least get married first. And then um, when we get our first fight, then you can come. If the Spirit of God has worked in your heart in a way that you cherish his first advent, that that incarnation of the Son of God is your salvation, then there's also a sense in which there is nothing that is, that is more desirable than to see him return and to see him face to face. To look on those blessed scars which are evidence, as we sang, of his saving grace to actually fall before him in his, the presence of his glory. To actually, at that moment, I mean, can, can, you, can you even begin to imagine it? We, we can't really, but to, to begin to think that, that, that once he returns, everything that I've longed for is now true. If you're a Christian, you should be more than all right with saying, you know, well, if Jesus came back this afternoon, you know, it'd be okay with me. No. If you say, well, it looks like the Niners are doing pretty good, so maybe he could wait till after the Super Bowl, you're an idolater. 
All right, you're just an idolater, plain and simple. I mean, of course the Niners are going to win, but I hope Jesus comes back before, right? I mean, wouldn't it even, wouldn't it even be wonderful, saints, if he returned before this day was even over? So the first attitude, eagerly await it. Eagerly await it. Where all of our great hopes then come true. The second attitude is, is this, is that such an anticipation actually ought to motivate us to obedience. Now, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about sort of a cheesy thing. So again, when I was in college, in college was a weird time. And it would be like, well, why not go into a bar? Well, if you went into a bar and Jesus returned, you wouldn't want Jesus returning if you were in a bar, would you? Okay, so I'm not talking about motivating you by scaring the pants off of you because you might be in the wrong place at the wrong time. You, you should have higher motivations for not being in the wrong place at the wrong time. All right, and if it's just, if it's just simply, Jesus might come back and catch me in a bar. He already knows you're in the bar. It's not like, wow, I guess we wouldn't have known this about Daniel if I hadn't come back right when I came back. He already knows, right? So what are we talking about? So, so here's the thing. So in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is, this, is, this, is, this is second appearing motivated obedience. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The apostle says, verse 6, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Right? I want to live a life that's pleasing to my Savior. Why? Verse 10, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so there is a sense in which I live my life in the reality that one of these days our Lord is going to return and I'm going to give an account to him for the life that he's given to me. What do you think? Do you think that day is just going to be a, a, a bunch of giggles? Not hardly. We're talking about the glorified, resurrected Son of Man who will judge us with eyes as flaming fire. There will be nothing that gets by his notice on that day. And so I want to, I want to live a life that's pleasing to him because I know that one of these days I'm going to give an account to the Savior who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't tremble at giving an account as if maybe I'll be cast into hell because as I stand there on that day, I am actually secure in the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing can move me off of that. 
But I want to live a life that's pleasing to him. Not so that I can earn his favor, but because God is my father and the Lord Jesus is my savior. He's my elder brother. He's given me his spirit who lives in me. And I I don't want to actually just show up on that day when he returns and be one of those guys that say, you know what? Yeah, I had some talents, but I hid it in the ground because I knew you were actually an exacting judge. Our attitude is to be eagerly awaiting his return. Anticipation ought to motivate us to obedience. It also ought to give us patience in trials. James 1.12, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, even 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 17, 18. All of these texts talk about the fact that our trials are temporary You might be, be going through the, the, the absolute worst time of your entire life. Right now, today. And if you have the blessed hope residing in your heart, you know that that trial is not the way things are always going to be. You know one of these days the Son of God will return. And He will set all things right. Can you patiently endure suffering knowing that He's coming? Can you patiently endure persecution, trials, and affliction knowing that he is coming? And the answer is yes. Now, sometimes, sometimes the intensity of those trials make us cry out with even more fervency, come Lord Jesus. But the reality is, is that 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 outer man is decaying. He's perishing. The inner man is being renewed day by day. And what is he doing? He's working in me an eternal weight of glory. That one of these days is never ever going to pass away. Nothing's going to taint it. Nothing's going to diminish it. And so what do I look forward to? I look forward to that day when he returns. Hey, maybe I'll be in the ground. We'll get to this in a second. Maybe I'll be one of those that are alive oh but when he returns he will indeed set all things right there should be a sense of readiness next attitude so eagerly await motivate to obedience patience and trials last one readiness right so by the way By readiness, I don't mean like checking every day the rapture index to go, okay, well, let's see. Um, The probability of Jesus returning today is like six points higher than it was yesterday, okay? By the way, that's kind of silly in a sense, right? Because Jesus says nobody knows the day or the hour, right? And so you live in a state of readiness. What is readiness? Readiness is the opposite of, of being settled in like this is your permanent home. Okay? Readiness is, is living 
with a sense that this present life is a vapor, it'll soon be over, and what I'm really living for is, in fact, the age to come. And so, are there parables that teach us about readiness? Well, yeah, so the ten virgins, okay? Ten virgins teach about readiness, okay? Um, We're actually going to do something this afternoon that instills readiness. We're going to eat the bread and drink the cup, and I'm going to recite these words. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, it is an eating and a drinking in anticipation to the day when the marriage supper of the Lamb will be complete. And this thing that we do, right, they're not out here yet, but this thing that we do as a regular reminder will finally be consummated. And so as I eat the bread and drink the cup, I'm eating and drinking and reminding myself, I keep doing this, but one day he'll come. So, those are the attitudes. There are more, of course. In other words, real simple, the second coming should actually change the way that we live. There are texts that tell us that, but our text in Titus actually does just as good of a job as any. Because what he does is after looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ... Then notice, who gave himself for us, so then he bounces back, as it were, to the first advent to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for a people of his own possession, zealous for every good work. John Frame says this, he says, so far as I can see, every Bible passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose, not to help us develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience. Okay. So, in seven minutes, what is going to happen when Jesus returns? First, unbelievers will be resurrected and judged. Unbelievers will be resurrected and judged. The scripture is absolutely clear about this. John chapter 5, verse 21, 22, the, fa- the Father doesn't judge anyone. He's given all judgment over to the Son. And then 25 to 27 in that same chapter, actually Jesus talks about a day when everyone will hear the voice of the Son of God and some will come forth to a judgment of uh, condemnation and others to a resurrection of righteousness. Acts seventeen thirty one. there is actually a day which is fixed in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And so here is, here is the, the reality, is that when Jesus Christ returns a second time, he is going to return not as, not as the humble lamb who laid down his life for the sheep. He's going to come as a judge. He will return in power and glory to wage war. The Son of God goes forth to war. And it will be at that time that he will, in fact, judge 
all of his enemies, and all of his enemies will therefore be judged forever. You do understand that 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 day when he returns and that judgment, which is spoken of throughout the whole Bible, that day is as absolutely certain as today. There is no chance that that day is not going to happen. That day will most certainly happen. And so if he returns a second time and you are among those who are alive at his coming, you better be ready. And you better be ready to stand before the judge of all the earth who will do right. Now it's very possible that you may die before he returns. And you will equally wish you had been ready. And so make no mistake about it. One of the purposes, one of the results of the second coming will be to judge unbelievers. Another thing that will happen is that believers themselves will be, will be glorified and given resurrected bodies. We see this in Romans chapter 8. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We see it in Philippians chapter 3. There's a sense in when, which our Lord returns. So this is what Paul tells the Thessalonians. So the Thessalonians had some, they, they had gotten some mixed up eschatology, all right? And so they were worried about people who died before Jesus had come back. So if you're expecting Jesus to come back at any time and then somebody dies, you might start thinking, well, what what about that person? And so Paul is, is very clear. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of those who have fallen asleep, which is a Christian euphemism for those who have died. Then he tells us this, those who have died will, those who have not died will not precede those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Then Paul tells us this, and this is, this is the vital part. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead shall, the dead in Christ shall be raised. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And so what happens when the Lord Jesus Christ returns is that those saints who have preceded us, uh, preceded his coming, they actually will be physically raised from the dead. They will be given resurrected, glorified bodies. They actually have, as it were, the priority. Then those who are alive and remain will go from from these living bodies to then transformed into glorious resurrected bodies. And so the saints have what to look forward to. They have to look forward to the resurrection and glorification of the body so that these bodies will be, will be brought into conformity with the same glorious body as our Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole purpose of creation will finally be consummated as the children of God receive their full adoption, the redemption of their bodies. 
Don't ask me questions that I can't answer. Will I be bald if my, in my glorified body? Um, will I still be fat in my glorified body? Um, will I have gray hair in my glorified body? Will my back hurt? I can be, I can be pretty sure about this. Your back will not hurt <laughs> in a glorified body. And so our Lord Jesus will return. He'll judge unbelievers. He'll raise those up from the dead who are his redeemed. And there's this wonderful sense in which our justification, which we have right now by faith, ends up becoming sight as we are owned by him in that day. Believers will give an account for their lives. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5.10. And then from there on out, believers will live in perfect communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, free from all sin and all the effects of sin. Forever. Forever. No more sickness. After our Lord Jesus returns, you will never again Hear the word cancer. You will never hear again the word tumor. You will never again hear those kinds of words. The old things have passed away. Behold, everything is going to be new. No more curse, no more death, no more tears. The Son of God will return and will reverse all the effects of Adam's fall. So, we ought to love his appearing and long for his presence. We ought to pray for it and to be ready for it. You say, well, it's a fixed day. Why pray? Your praying is not going to change the day but you're praying, we'll change you. That day is fixed, but to pray that that day comes will have a sanctifying influence on your heart, making you long for the Lord Jesus more and more. And we ought to warn others to flee from the wrath to come. Evangelism and missions has been fueled by the second coming for generations. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. And so our blessed hope is nothing other than the return of our Lord Jesus Christ personally and visibly to earth. His return is going to bring justice to the earth, renewal of the cosmos, and his return will fit us for all eternity to be with Some of you remember well our dear brother Dave McKenzie. Dave is about six foot four, and I have no idea how much he weighs, and he is one giant of a man. We got to know him through our prison ministry, and he is a sweet, dear brother. And uh, Lord willing, he'll be here for our 30th anniversary. And so he listens to every sermon. So, Dave, everybody's expecting you. At least once a week. He's in, he's in Wisconsin, so he's ahead of me time-wise. And at least once a week, I'll pick up my phone 
in the morning, and I'll look, and there'll be a text from Dave, and it will say, maybe today. Maybe today. And so, brothers and sisters, may we all long for his appearing. And who knows, maybe 2024 will be the year that he returns in power and great glory. Oh, to see him in glory. And so I remind you of these words. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for the first appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is our salvation. The forgiveness of our sins through the Lamb of God. And how we long for his second appearing. And so, Lord, we pray today, even so, come, Lord Jesus. But, Father, we're mindful that not everybody in this room can say those words. And if they were, they would be saying words that would speak to their own judgment right now. And so we pray for those who are without Christ, without hope and dead in their sins, that you, by, their spirit, by your Spirit, would open their eyes and that they would run by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is able not only to forgive them of all of their sins, but to grant them eternal life and a resurrection in the age to come. And so, Father, we do pray, even so, come Lord Jesus. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.